some of the scriptures that he's been revealing to me and really been encouraging to me and challenging to me in my life uh, recently. And this is one of those. 1 Peter chapter 5 um, is definitely one of those. And it's probably familiar to a lot of you, but if you've never heard it, I hope you're encouraged by uh, the scriptures that we read today. And this came about a couple months ago. I was meeting with some young adult guys, and we were going over a certain topic that one of them wanted to talk about. And I went to this passage and I basically wrote that sermon right then. Um, I, I knew this passage about anxiety, and I knew this passage about worry and, and casting our cares upon him. But as I sat there and, and talked over this passage with the young adult guys, God basically like made all the points right there. And so I've remembered that, and he's been teaching me that, and so I wanted to give it to you this morning. Know that it was, it was kind of wrote a couple months ago, but I spent a good bit of time on it this week um, as well, making sure um, everything was fine-tuned the way the Holy Spirit I wanted it to be. Uh, this is a, an important passage of Scripture for us, but one, one of the things that God taught me as I was reading over it is that this is what I, sometimes we do this, and I always encourage the teenagers not to do this, is just take one passage or one verse of Scripture, and that's it. There's a real uh, danger sometimes in just doing that, because you can take one verse and completely shape it into a context that it was never meant to be in in the first place. It's kind of what I had done with verse 7, all right? Um, but I didn't read verse 6 and 8. I read them separately. They're such good scriptures that verse 6 could really be its own sermon, verse 7 could be its own sermon, and verse 8 could be its own sermon. But I don't think that's the way Peter intended those to be read. He intended them to be read together. And they help you better understand each one of them when you have all of them together. So I know that I used to encourage the teenagers to do this, is if you read a certain verse, you need to read all the verses before it and all the ones after it. At least read the whole chapter to fully understand what that one verse may mean. And if you're reading a chapter of Scripture, you may even want to read the chapter before that chapter and the chapter after it and get the whole story of necessarily what God is teaching through this. And for this, as short of a book as First Peter is, you may just want to go ahead and read all five chapters to fully understand the significance of verse 6, 7, and eight, because here's what's taking place. As we read this, you're going to see these are really awesome verses, but remember who Peter's writing to. Peter's writing to a group of people who are in exile. They were running for their lives. And so remember that as we read this, these people are running for their lives, and here's why they're running for their lives. Nero had basically set Rome on fire. He basically burned the place down because he thought he needed to rebuild and start over. And so the people didn't like that, obviously. Like, if you owned a home or if you owned a, a shop within this area, Nero burns it down, you're going to be upset with the guy, right? So he finds out people are upset. So here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to blame it on the Christians. I'll blame it on the Christians within the town. And so who are the people now mad at? They're now mad at the Christians. So what do the Christians have to do? They have to flee because persecution is happening. And the people are like, well, let's, let's just get rid of them. Let's kill them. Let's be done with these Christians. They're the people that burned our city down. And so that was their idea. Let's get rid of them. So as, as Peter writes this book, he's writing to a group of people that are in exile. They don't have a home. They're wandering from place to place. But here's the awesome thing that happens. Anytime persecution happens, the gospel is spread. See, Nero may have meant this for harm against the, the church or against believers, but God took this and used it for his gospel to be spread throughout different places that it may not have otherwise been spread to. And so one of the questions that we'll think about as we go through this is what's happening in my life? How is God using it to further spread his kingdom? 
Ultimately, that's the goal of all things that take place in, in our lives, is that God wants to spread his kingdom. And we are on board a lot of times with the good things that take place in our lives. God, you can spread your kingdom through the good, but a lot of times the way God works are through trials and bad things or struggles or hard times. God works through those, right? So God was working in this church, right? Just because this church was in exile, they didn't necessarily have a home, and they were fleeing. This group of people, God was working in and through them. And so Peter writes this letter to them to encourage them. In chapter 1, it's a really awesome chapter. His first encouragement to them is, anybody know what's in chapter 1? He says, be holy. He says, through all of this process, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look more like Jesus. As you suffer, guess what? You can look more like Jesus. As you are persecuted, you can look more like Jesus. As things are good, you can look more like Jesus. As things are bad, you can look more like Jesus. And he continues this process, and then we get to chapter 5. And we get to verses 6 through 7. But again, like I told you, to better understand verses 6, 7, and 8, let's read 5 and 9 as well, and then we'll go through these. So hopefully you've gotten to 1 Peter chapter 5, and you better understand a little bit of context or background to what Peter is about to tell this church and encourage them to do. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 5, we'll read through verse 9 at this time. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. How many of you have heard that passage of Scripture before? You've read that one. And it's probably been a great encouragement to you that as you've gone through trials, but as I read that, again, verse 7 um, stands out, like I said, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. But to better understand verse 7, we've got to get verse 6. If verse 6 doesn't happen, verse 7 is never going to take place in our lives. And then he's going to tell us, here's why you need to you master verse 6 and 7, because verse 8 is a warning for us of what can take place and what is actually taking place in our world today if we don't cast all our anxieties upon him. The first thing I want you to get this morning is that humility is our first step to freedom. Humility is our first step to freedom. Before Peter mentions casting our anxieties upon God, he states that there must be an attitude of humility before God. Humility is confessing that you can't do this on your own and that you need help. Until we get to the point where we just admit not only to God, but to other people that I cannot do this on my own. I can't live this life on my own. I can't overcome these things on my own. Until we get to the point where we confess that to God, then we're never going to cast our anxieties upon him. We're never going to surrender it all down to him. As Paul told us last week, it's putting no confidence in the flesh, but rather putting our confidence in God. It's a full understanding that I can't. And I won't try to do it on my own. I can only do it through Jesus. And I will lay it down before him, and I will be humble. Only humble people will confess that they are in need of someone else. You could really say that humility is a key to us even surrendering our lives to Jesus in the first place. Because no one with pride is going to lay down their lives to Jesus. We need more humble people. 
We need more people that realize it isn't all about us. I can't do it on my own. I need God. I need the church. I need my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need others. And most importantly, I need God. It's also confessing that you, you can't do it on your own, but there's also the idea of saying to Jesus that I am your servant and that you can use me however it is you want to use me. So that means, Jesus, if you want me to suffer in this very moment that I am in, I'm okay with it. If you want me to be in exile, I'm okay with it. If you, if you want me to be persecuted at this very moment in my life, Jesus, I'm okay with it. Humility basically surrenders it all to Jesus and says, Jesus, you can do with me whatever it is you want to do. I am your servant. You don't serve me. I serve you, Jesus. That's part of the humility aspect in our lives. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus is the example of this, right? It says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He said, God, whatever it takes to redeem those people, I'm on board with it and I'll do it. Jesus is our example of what humility looks like. He is humility. And that's our aim. That's our goal, is to be so humble before Jesus that we confess it all belongs to him. I'm your servant. You can use me. You can do with me whatever it is that you want for me to do. Humility requires a sense of honesty before God and before other people. And what happens when we become honest with God and we become honest with people a lot of times it takes control out of our hands. How many of you just like to fully give up control to your lives? Probably not, not most people. You don't want to fully give up control. Why? Because there's a lot of unknowns to that, right? When you follow Jesus, there's a lot of unknowns, which means I don't necessarily know where Jesus is going to take me tomorrow a lot of times. I don't necessarily know where Jesus is going to have me six months from now. I don't necessarily know where Jesus is going to have me a year from now. But it confesses honestly to him that I may not know all those things, but Jesus, I'm humble enough to say I'm okay with not knowing those things because I know that I serve the one who does know all of those things. See, there may, there may be unknowns to you and I. There may be unknowns to the church at times, but there are no unknowns to God. Nothing escapes the view of God. Nothing catches God by surprise in your life or in my life or in this church. He isn't surprised by anything. So we can find assurance in knowing that we serve a God who isn't surprised by anything, by any circumstance or anything that I go through, any temptation that comes my way. He's not surprised by any of that. What he says in verse 6, he says, is though at the proper time, he will exalt you. That's the hard part for us to get a lot of times because the proper time for us is right now. God, this is the proper time for you to take care of it. Right now is the proper time for you to take care of it. But the proper time to God may not necessarily be right now. The proper time from God may be tomorrow, a year from now, ten years from now. The proper time may be when you actually get into eternity. That may be the proper time. God's the one in control of the proper time. We have to make sure there's not an impatience towards the sovereignty of God, trusting that he can do whatever it is he wants to do with my life because he's in control of it. That's what humility does. I read this this week from Jackie Hill Perry. It says, At times I'm afraid to ask God for humility. I don't know how he'll answer, if it will come by pain, public humiliation, or by some easier unforeseen path. Either way, however it comes, whether by difficulty or ease, it always is better for me 
than pride would do for me. Humility is always better for us, and humility confesses to God, whatever it takes, make me look more like Jesus. If I'm not humble, if I'm not having a sense of humility, if I'm not striving by the power of God to be a more humble person in my life, then verse 7 is never going to take place. And this is what I got. I had read verse 7, and I knew about casting my anxieties upon God because He cares for me. But I didn't fully grasp the idea that I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to fully experience that the way God wants me to experience it if I don't humble myself before God and confess to Him that it's all about Him. And I am so in need of Him each and every single day of my life that I cannot do this without Jesus. That's what really the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ, right? to confess that it's about him and that I can't do it without him. Secondly, he says, we serve a God who personally cares for each of us, for each and every single one of us. Verse 7, it says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This idea of casting is to basically throw something upon someone else. It's basically a relinquishing of all the things and the anxieties, the struggles, the feelings that I have in my life. I basically take them and say, now they, not, they now belong to you, Jesus. These are now yours. And, and sometimes we do that, right? But then what do we do? Life gets good. Well, Jesus, I'll take those back. I can hold on to them. And we've got this struggle going back and forth between us and God of things are good, so I take them back and I lay them upon myself. I can take care of my family. I can take care of my finances. I can take care of work. I can take care of my schooling. I can take care of this problem that I'm facing because it's really not that bad right now. And then it gets really bad, right? And then what do we do? Jesus, you take it back. And we're, we're struggling for a while, and then it gets good, and then Jesus, I'll take them back. But this idea of what Peter is saying is like, listen, if we ever get out of exile, if persecution ever stops happening, you still cast your anxieties all upon God. It's all for him. It's all about him. And it all should be surrendered and given. This isn't a tug of war between our problems and God, of God trying to fight to get them from us. And we try to fight to get them back because we want them for a little bit. But instead, it's like, God, they all are on you now. I can't. I've had enough. I'm tired of worrying. I'm tired of being anxious. I'm tired of struggling. I'm tired of worrying about where the next bit of money is going to come from. I'm tired of worrying about all these things. I'm tired of stressing about all this stuff. I can't do it. But Jesus, you can. And so I will cast my anxieties upon you. I will surrender it all to you. I will lay it all down before you because I trust in you and because you care for me. It is an awesome thing to think about. I love being a pastor, and I love all of you guys, but one of the things that, that I struggle with is getting to spend time with each and every single one of you. It is impossible to do the way I would love to, to spend time with each and every single one of you. But here's, here's the good thing about God, is that as much as I struggle with that, God doesn't struggle with that with any of us is that he cares as much about you as he does your neighbor sitting beside you, the person down the street, the person around the globe. He has enough care for each and every single person that your problems are just as important as this person's problems. And he cares about all of those problems. And he cares about all of those things. 
So never feel like you're going to overwhelm God because you know someone else has got maybe some bigger issues in their lives. So maybe God needs to spend some more time on them and stop worrying about me or thinking about me because my problems aren't as significant as someone else's. And that's not biblical at all. God cares about each and every single person. And he's calling each and every single person to cast their anxieties upon him because he cares for you. You could almost take that word you out and put your name there. You could. God cares about Sam. God cares about you. And he's asking you to cast your anxieties upon him. Psalm 55 verse 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. My life will not be shaken. The foundation of who I am will not be shaken by the things that are going on around me. Because God cares for me. So if I'm humble, if I realize I can't do this, if I realize I'm in need of God, I'll cast my anxieties upon God because God cares for me. God will sustain me. God will never allow me to be moved. God will never allow anything to come in my life that will overtake me because Jesus is in control of my life. And nothing that I face in this world is bigger than Jesus. No problem, no struggle, no issue that takes place, no thing that's going on in our world today is any bigger than Jesus. And it can never overtake Jesus. So he says, find assurance in that, is that you serve a God who cares about you and cares about all your struggles and cares about all your problems and wants you to cast them upon him. And not only cast them upon him, forget about him and let him take care of them. That's a good God, isn't it? And that's the God that we serve. Our scripture reading was Matthew chapter 6. So you guys read that one. We're going to skip over that one um, just for time's sake. But that's a really awesome scripture that will help you better understand how much God cares about you. But here's what he says in verse 8. All right? Now, if I'm humble, I'm going to cast my anxieties upon God. God cares for me. God loves me. He wants to take care of my issues and my problems. That's all good news. But here's what happens if I don't. Or here's the warning, really why he's telling me that I should. I humble myself, I cast my anxieties upon God because he cares for me. Then verse 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. The the idea of being sober-minded there is to have clarity of mind, self-control. I'm focused on Jesus. I'm not swept away by passions or emotions. You know people like that? You can just tell what kind of day they're having as soon as you see them. Because they're swept away by these passions or emotions. If their day's going well, they're going to be happy. If they're having a rough day, you can tell it. Right? There's not maybe necessarily anything wrong with that. It makes it easier for you to figure out what's going on with that person. But I don't think that's where God wants us to stay. Because the idea of being joyful, of casting our anxieties upon God, of realizing that suffering will take place in persecution, is that God wants us to get to the point that when bad things happen, I can still find joy. I can still put a smile on my face even within those things that are going on within my life. That's what it means to be sober-minded is what Peter's telling us. Don't be swept away by how your day's going, by your passions or your emotions. Don't let them get the best of you. Stay focused on Jesus. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What happens when a person doesn't humble themselves? What happens when a person thinks, I can do this on my own? Jesus, I got this. 
Jesus, I don't need you today. I got this issue. I got this problem. Maybe I don't even have an issue or a problem. My day's just going good. So Jesus, I don't necessarily need you today. I got this. And you don't cast your anxieties upon God. You don't give your day to God. You don't give your life at that moment to God. He tells us, here's what happens. The devil is walking around. He's roaring and lying, and he's seeking people to devour that are just like that. He's seeking people to devour that are so holding on to their issues that they're being crippled by them. They're just holding on to their anxieties. They're holding on to their worries. They're holding on to their struggles. And the devil is winning in their lives. Holding on to our anxieties allows Satan to win in our lives. If we will not surrender those things to Jesus, if we will not lay those things down before Jesus, if we have the attitude that this one isn't that big of a deal, I got this one today, Jesus. The devil has us exactly where he wants us. When we get to any point in our lives to where we think, I don't even need Jesus because this problem is so small, it doesn't even require Jesus to help me out. If that's the attitude that we have within that moment, is Satan winning in that moment? You better believe he is. John 10.10 tells us this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Satan's goal is to kill you, to destroy you. He has no good intentions for you at all. And one of the best things that he can do as your enemy is get you to realize you don't need God. If he can get you to a point in your life where you think you don't need God, man, is he going to win. He's going to win daily, weekly, monthly, and he's going to win in your life. If you are a follower of Christ and you ever get to the moment where you think, I don't need Jesus within this, please realize that's the devil talking to you. There's not a moment that goes by as a Christian that you don't need Jesus. Not a moment. No matter how good or bad things may seem, you need Jesus at every single turn of your life. And for us to get to a point in our lives where we think, I don't necessarily need him, the devil is going to win. And he's walking around seeking people to devour. Christian, realize the devil is real. I read a survey by Barna a few years ago that said the majority of Christians don't even believe this, that Satan is real. Well, guess what? He's already winning in your life if he can get you to believe he doesn't even exist. That's scary, isn't it? If you don't think that there is an enemy of your soul whose sole purpose is to kill you and destroy you and just completely wipe you off the face of the earth, to get rid of you, and any effectiveness that you'll ever have for the kingdom of God. If I was the devil, that's what I think I would do. I would try to get you to believe that he doesn't exist. To think in your mind that there's not an enemy out there in the first place. Maybe this is good for Father's Day because as a father, I need to realize more and more every day that there's a battle that's taking place. The devil has terrible intentions for Audrey and Autumn. And his sole goal is to get them not focused on Jesus at all. That every single thing that I teach them about Jesus, he's over there telling them, no, 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 that stuff doesn't exist. 
And I know that they're going to be in school. I know they're going to be around people that are going to be used to tell them those things that they teach you at church, those things that your dad teaches you at home. Those things aren't real. You don't need Jesus. He's a crutch. Some figment of your, your dad's imagination, of some crazy church that you attend. You don't, you don't need Jesus. And if they ever get to that point, man, is Satan going to win when he gets us to believe that he doesn't exist. We have this sense of who the devil is because we've got these horror movies and, and people watch them. And we've got these films that, that make absolutely no sense and they portray this picture of Satan as some dark, evil person who's just out doing all these crazy stuff in horror films. But if, I don't think that's necessarily the way that he encounters most of us. I think most of us, all he just tries to do is get us to keep our attention off of Jesus. So there's a little struggle here. There's a little problem here. I'll sprinkle some of this over here and over there. Maybe I'll get them to wake up tomorrow morning and the Bible's beside them and go, listen, you got a million things to do today. You don't have 5, 10, 20 minutes to read the Bible. You don't have time to be on your knees before God. He doesn't really care about your day. But honestly, like if, if God did care about you, wouldn't he take care of the issue or the problem in the first place? Right? If he can get me to do that, what's the rest of my day going to look like? What's, what's Tuesday morning going to look like? What's Wednesday morning going to look like? And the next thing you know, like you've probably been there, you've been like a week without reading the scripture, spending time with Jesus. And then a week may turn into a month, and a month turns into six months, and you're like, man, I can't even remember the last time I've been to church. I can't remember the last time I picked up the scriptures outside of church. And he's winning because he's gotten us to take our attention and our focus off Jesus. And he's taken our attention and our focus and putting them on our struggles, our anxieties, our worries, our problems. And we have to understand his sole purpose is to do just that, to kill and destroy. He's seeking whom he may devour. But Peter says this in verse 9. He says, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him. Don't even give him an opportunity. Don't you allow that dirty, rotten snake to take over in your life. You call him exactly what it is. And I think that we don't do that because I think we try to avoid any mention of the name Satan or any demonic thing that's taken place. And we try to avoid all that altogether because we've watched these crazy, stupid movies and we are so terrified that for some of us, we're so crippled by fear of the enemy that the enemy is winning. He's got us like, no, you don't exist. But for some of us, he's like, no, you should be terrified of me. Now let me tell you, you have nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to be afraid of when it comes to the enemy. Because he has already been defeated. He is a loser. You've got nothing to be afraid of, Christian. Absolutely nothing to be afraid of. So if you allow the devil maybe to, to just have you believe that he doesn't exist, maybe you want to be crippled in fear, don't allow those things to take place. If, if that's some of your anxiety, is that you are just afraid, confess it to God and lay it down before him. Cast it upon him. Just say, listen, I, I'm terrified right now, Jesus. 
I don't know what's going on. I don't know that all this, this guy's up there talking about Satan and an enemy, and I believe it's foolish, and I don't understand any of that. Confess it to God and lay it down before him. Cast your anxieties upon him. James 4, 7 through 8 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, that's awesome, right? If I resist him, I just tell him exactly what I think of him and who he is, and then I am a child of God. I belong to Jesus. You have no room here. You have no power here. You've been defeated. You're a loser, and Jesus has already taken care of all of this. I resist him. What does is, what is Jesus tell us? He's got no power. Where is he going to go? He's going to flee. He's going to get out of here because you've decided he's not hanging around here. He says, but instead, resist the devil. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I resist the devil, I draw near to God, and God will draw near to me. A.W. Tozer said this, he says, I'm not afraid of the devil, the devil can handle me. He's got judo I've never heard of. The devil can handle me, he's got judo I've never heard of, but he can't handle the one to whom I'm joined. He can't handle the one to whom I'm united. He can't handle the one whose nature dwells in my nature. He cannot defeat Jesus. And if I've cast everything that I have upon Jesus, my anxieties in my entire life, I am a child of God, I'm surrendered to God, I'm full of God, and God dwells in me, Satan has no power and he cannot defeat me. Because he cannot defeat Jesus. Oswald Chambers says, We look upon the enemy of our souls as a conquered foe, so he is, but only to God, not to us. He's a conquered foe to God. God already has defeated him. So as God indwells me, he's lost because he has no power. In verse 10, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Wow, that's awesome to think about. No matter what I'm experiencing, no matter what I'm going through, no matter what area or issue is in my life, Christ is at work restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing me more than I have ever been. That Jesus is at work within all of those things. Jesus wants us to be humble people. He wants us to be strong people. He wants us to be strong, Christian. You've been called to be strong in Jesus. He wants us to be full of life. He wants us to be joyful people that are excited about things. But he also wants us to be ready to fight. And whether you think so or not, you are in a fight every single day. You, you've been in a fight right now as there's been a message given to you about the fight. The Holy Spirit's telling you, yeah, you're in this fight. Get ready because it's going to ramp up and it's getting worse. And it is because this church is moving forward and reaching out. And the more that we do that, the more Satan is going to try to attack us. I, I firmly believe that Satan absolutely hates this place. And I think he hates it even more than ever right now. The more that we get out reaching to people and taking the light into dark places, he's going to try it every chance he gets to try to stop what's taking place here. So my encouragement to you is don't be afraid. If you see things that are out of the ordinary, maybe even here in a service, if you've seen things that are out of the ordinary, if something takes place within your family, your home, don't be afraid. 
You serve a God who's already won the battle. You fight for the king. You fight with the king, and his name is Jesus. John 16, 33, our last scripture here. It says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace within all of this. I can have peace within all of this, right? It says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We serve a God who's already won. We fight on the winning side. Let's live our lives like it, amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to read these scriptures, to be challenged by these scriptures. Lord, I pray that you've been honored by all that's said today. Jesus, thank you that you've already won. The victory has already been won in you. Lord, we ask you to continue to strengthen us, give us the boldness, the courage that we need to live life joyfully before you. Lord, help us to realize that the devil has bad intentions, but he's already lost. He has no power in our lives. He has no power within this church. But we also must stay more focused on you as individuals and as the body of Christ. We thank you, Jesus. Encourage us, strengthen us, challenge us to look more like you, to walk more like you each and every single day of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.